Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Father, we thank you for this evening and for this conference and for all the souls who are here. We would ask for your blessing, for your encouragement, that we might have a delightful time together, that the speakers might help us to look forward to the new creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Welcome, everyone. So glad you all are here for the All Things New Pactum Conference. I am delighted that we're able to spend the next couple of days together. So looking forward to this. I hope you have a great time. And in this opening session, my intent is to encourage you. I want to encourage you with the reality of the new creation. And to do that, we are going to look at Revelation chapter 21. And so if you have a Bible, if you didn't find it when I was reading it earlier, I was reading from the 21st chapter of the Revelation. And so we're going to be encouraged from the new creation or about the new creation in this opening session. And since this is billed as a prophecy conference, there will be seven points. I plan to draw your attention to seven encouraging features about the new creation. Seven encouraging features about the new creation that are tremendous, that are wonderful, that are heartwarming, hopefully perseverance inspiring, all from either Revelation 21 or maybe we have to say thereabouts. Number one, be encouraged by the new creation because it is Pactum approved. Now you probably, of course, right? You probably think I mean, well, it's Pactum podcast approved, or it's Pactum conference approved, or it's Pactum publishing approved. All of that would be true, but that's not what I mean. I mean, it's approved by the Pactum, as in, in theology, the Pactum salutis. And for those of you who don't understand Latin, myself included, but I've got a great Latin dictionary, the Pactum Salutis is the covenant of redemption. It is that amazing reality that our triune God, before the foundation of the world, made this amazing pact, if that helps you. This intra-Trinitarian covenant before the foundation of the world that elect sinners would be redeemed and what's amazing is, not only spiritually redeemed, but also bodily redeemed for what? The new creation. 
How do we know that this is the case? Well, we know that the fruit of the pactum, the fruit of the pactum salutis, the fruit of the covenant of redemption is new creation because the only people who get into the new creation are those who are with their names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Look with me if you would. Revelation chapter 21. How about verse 27? Revelation 21, 27 talks about those who won't enter into the new creation, but we need to see the positive side. It ends with those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And, and how, do you get your, how in the world do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, if we also look in Revelation 13, 8, written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 17, 8 says essentially the same thing. So who goes into the new creation? Who's a member of the new creation? Those who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And when did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. And if you've been reading the Bible much at all, you know that sounds a lot like, if not exactly like, the pactum text, right? The ultimate Ephesians chapter 1. Before the found, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And it goes on in Ephesians 1 to talk about for redemption. And then if we want to add to that, Romans chapter 8 talks about not just redemption of our souls, which is super important, redemption of our bodies. That's what I mean by it's pactum approved. We will enter into the new creation as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of God's perfect decree, because of God's perfect plan. We will be there. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. It's according to plan. It's amazing to think about this great reality. I think it's right to say the aim, maybe I shouldn't say the aim, too many theologians in the room, an aim of the covenant of redemption is the new creation. To the praise of his glorious grace, if we can use Ephesians chapter 1. Absolutely amazing to think about. Mysterious, yes, but true and amazing. The new creation is according to, to decree, according to plan. How encouraging is that? I think it's very encouraging. And then even to think about the fact that if that's true, before the foundation of the world, that means that everything that was happening in redemptive history was always leading toward that new creation reality for those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Astounded. Take comfort. Oh, yes, as I said, it's mysterious. You might have questions, but take comfort in the great reality of who gets into the new creation according to God's amazing grace. A second encouraging feature, number two, be encouraged by the new creation because it is the answer. It is the answer. It is the answer even if no one's asking the question. Right? It's what you need if you have any kind of problems in your life. What's the ultimate solution? I mean, just think of all the problems. I hate to do it. Grief, pain, loneliness, disease, death, calamity, persecution, catastrophe, injustice, and on and on the list could go. And it's, so, it's multidimensional. All of the hard things, all of the things that make us cry, all of the things that make us sad, all of the things that make us depressed. The answer, ultimately, Right? It's the new creation. Let's go ahead and look at verse 1 of, 20 of, of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. And the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first is gone, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10, and 10 to 12, because it's plagued with unrighteousness. It's pl- the first is plagued with unrighteousness, and so 2 Peter says it will be destroyed. So John says it in a little bit nicer way. It passes away, but Peter chimes in with it's destroyed. It will be destroyed because it's plagued with unrighteousness, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's the answer. It's going to be wonderful. All the hard things are going to be gone. Even the sea is no more. Now, does God have a beef with oceans? I think he created the oceans. I don't think that's really the point. And I know some of you are from coastal cities and surf. I I don't think God hates surfing. So just so you know, don't walk out early. I think William Hendrickson is right when he says this. The sea as we now know it is no more. At present, he's so insightful in this. At present, the sea is the emblem of unrest and conflict. The roaring, raging, agitated, tempest-tossed waters, the waves perpetually engaged in combat with one another, symbolize the nations of the world in their conflict and unrest. Chapter 13, chapter 17, it is the sea out of which the beast rises in Revelation. He goes on to say, but in the new heaven and earth, all will be peace. I think I can get behind that observation and soak in the surfers. Oh, okay, but the bad stuff is gone, and only good stuff is gone, and it gets better, I think, in verse 2, and I saw the holy city, the different city, the extraordinary city, the unrivaled city, the one that's like no other, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem is where where, where it's going to be at, not the old Jerusalem. By the way, I love the old Jerusalem. I I love going to the Middle East. I I love seeing the archaeology stuff. I I love the travel. I love seeing all, learning all the history, Old Testament, New Testament. It's it's wonderful. I love going to the old Jerusalem, going to Ben Yehuda Street, eating Moshika shawarma. Who's been there? Yeah, some, right? It's delicious. It's wonderful. New Jerusalem. That's where it's at, right? That's where it's at. We're not looking for a remade Ben Yehuda Street. <laughs> We're looking forward to, to the new Jerusalem. Prophesied in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 62. That's what we're looking forward to. It's kind of fascinating. We won't take the time to go there, but in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 12, it talks about the church and the new Jerusalem. But in Isaiah, if you only read Isaiah 61 and 62, it's only for the Jews. But then when you keep reading the Bible, you say, oh, it's not just for the Jews, it's Jews and Gentiles because they're together in the church. New Jerusalem is for the people of God. I love it. It's amazing to think about. The holy city, New Jerusalem. How about verse 3? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! It's a command. You must do this. Make sure you hear this. Don't miss it. You need this for your soul. Behold, the dwelling place of God. Think temple. Think tabernacle. Is with man. He will dwell. Think temple. Think tabernacle. The unique presence of God with his people. With them. And they will be his people. Wait a second. Actually, literally and 
They will be his peoples. And I know our English translation doesn't capture it, but I checked. It's peoples, which is actually really important. Should I tell you now or should I wait a little bit? It's really important because actually he's quoting, he's dealing with Ezekiel and the Ezekiel text. In the Ezekiel text, Ezekiel 37 that prophesies this, it's singular. Because you think Jews and you think only Jews. John in the Revelation says, peoples. Because it's not only going to be the Jews. It's better than maybe we would have realized if we didn't have more revelation. It's, just, it's so exciting to think about. Amazing. Where were we? Okay. And, th- and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them as their God. So it's, if you know much about the Bible at all, you know this, this is covenant talk. This is special talk. This is what the promises sound like. And here it is. And here it is ultimately, finally, climactically, not by way of preview, but this is where it's all been going. And now it's there. It's the answer. Finally. (sighs) Fulfillment. Think about the fact that in the garden, it was tabernacle-like, dwelling with God. God's walking with them. Okay, then we go to the Old Testament, move throughout the history and foreshadow then the tabernacle and the temple. And then with the coming of Christ, John 1.14, it's previewed, it's secured, it's inaugurated with the work of Christ. But what we're looking at is, now it's here. There's coming a day when it will be perfect tabernacling. And it'll be all settled and it'll be all done because of the work of your champion savior, the Lord Jesus You might not even be a Baptist, but I hope inside you're saying, amen. That's right. Right? That's right. Verse 4 then says, again, this is the answer. No, No matter what, this is the answer. He, that covenant Lord, the great one, the unrivaled one, the trustworthy one, he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, again, another command. Make sure you you hear this. I am making all things new. People say, well, what are the all things? Well, how about all the things that are necessary, right? All All of the things that are necessary for you to no longer be in conflict with God. All the things that are necessary for you to no longer be in conflict with other people. All the things that are necessary for you to no longer be in conflict with the world around you or yourself. Whatever is necessary for those things, it's all new. Done. And and you might think, oh, so this is going to take us back to the garden. Won't that be great? It's going to be better, right? If if we want to say it's garden-like, it's not garden-variety-like garden-like, Right? Well, because the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He, he has secured this firmly and finally, unlike the first Adam, the last Adam does everything necessary. He passes all of the tests. All things new, never to be reversed, secured. Amazing. I wonder why he says, I am making all things new. Well, probably to stress the sureness. We could talk about the grammar, but I won't do that. But also to stress the fact that it's sure in light of Christ. 
right? When he says, I am making, it's because it's totally sure, and it's totally sure because of the already finished work of Christ. The ESV translation has, actually has a marginal note, and they cite 2 Corinthians 5.17. They tie it to the new creation. Revelation 3.14 says that Jesus is the beginning of God's new creation. And I'm going to stop there because Michael Beck is going to answer every question you have about already, not yet, tomorrow, right? <laughs> That's his task. So he's going to talk to us about these realities, but it, it, it's sure, it's certain, he's making all things new. But it's as if to say, because of the work of Christ, it's done. It's done. The answer is the new creation. I need this. I need this when I'm depressed. I need this when I'm wronged. I need this when I wrong others. This whole thing for me is at least birthed out of the need to not be so discouraged. The new creation is the ultimate answer. Let's move on to a third. A third. Be encouraged by the new creation because it is certain. Because it is certain. Think about all of the things that we hear about the future that may or may not be true. I will pay you back. I promise. I do. You have my word. You can beat this. See you tomorrow. Vote for me and I will. Many things are promised to us as if they're certain, and they may or may not be. So how is it that we can be certain regarding the coming new creation for us where there's no more tears, where there's no more death and there's no more sorrow? Well, I'm glad you asked. We can be certain because of the one making the promise. That's how. In our passage, in Revelation 21, he's the one who's on the throne in verse 5, seated on the throne. Think in comparison to emperors, to kings, to those in authority, to those who persecute Christians, who are hostile to Christians. You know who says this is going to be true? The one who's on the ultimate throne above all the other ones, the king of kings, the ultimate sovereign. So it's meant to bring comfort and encouragement. This is certain. Not only that, notice the alpha and the omega, the eternal God is making this promise. And he's the one who says these words are trustworthy and true. So that, that's it. In addition to this, we can be certain because of Jesus, right? Revelation 1.5, the firstborn from the dead. I believe Jesus, and I'm certain about all this stuff because I think it would be irrational not to. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're irrational. I think it's irrational to not be a Christian. Why? Because he's resurrected from the dead. Think about it. Jesus came to earth, lived on planet earth in a real place, real time, real history, and did real things. He made huge claims, and then he died. But he said he was going to be raised, and he was in real time, in real space, in real history. How can we be certain that these things are going to be true? Because of Jesus, because of the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. That's how. The beginning of God's new creation, as we already saw, Revelation 3.14. The beginning. It says the beginning of God's creation, but in context, in light of everything, it's not just the beginning of God's creation. He's talking about the beginning of God's new creation. It's so good. It's so encouraging. Did I tell you that I was going to try to encourage you today with the new creation? That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. 
we can be certain because of the revelation as well. Notice in verse 5, and I don't mean revelation capital R, the revelation, I mean as in Scripture. Verse 5, and also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm thankful for that. Write this down. Christianity is an inscripturated religion to aid with its sureness. Don't just pass this on by way of word of mouth. Because one day they're going to invent telephones and they're going to have this thing called the telephone game. And it's going to get all confused. It's not that. John, write this down. Write, write this down because that's how sure this is. Write this down for the benefit of others, no doubt, right? So we can, in 2023 in Omaha, Nebraska, at the Pactum Conference, they can be encouraged. But see, it's sure. In, in scripturated revelation so that we can know that it somehow didn't get lost over time because uh, it was all by word of mouth. No. And also we can be certain because the whole structure of the Bible anticipates this. All, we're certain because if you, if you just look at the themes starting in Genesis and you see the similarity in between and then in Revelation, you say, a lot of these themes are the same. And for good reason. Consider some of them. The garden. Tree of life. Dominion. Temptation. Serpent. Having the right to eat of the fruit. Yeah, guess what? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, as 1 Corinthians calls him, he passes the test. He conquers the serpent. He's the one that gains the right to eat from the tree for us. Genesis to Revelation, the, 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 the organic development of the whole thing all the more causes me to not lose faith in our confidence in the Bible. I'm like, it's as if one divine author wrote the whole thing. It's as if there's a pactum salutis. <laughs> it's as if this is the way it was always designed to be and history's always been going somewhere. All you have to do is pay attention. It causes me to be rather certain. Let's move on to a fourth I wanted to talk about prophet, priest, and king as well. I wanted to talk about how they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb as well, Revelation 15. But time won't allow. Let's move on. After certainty, number four, be encouraged by the new creation because it is unifying. It is unifying. Now, do I have to tell you that Christians disagree about a lot of things? We, agree, we disagree on tons of things, sometimes trivially, and sometimes it's more important than others, but we disagree about a lot of things. But most Christians I've ever talked to, most of them, can get behind things like, in verse 1, new heaven and new earth. They can get behind uh, no more death, uh, no more mourning, no more pain. God is going to make all things new. Most Christians could say, you know, I, I can agree to that. I disagree with you on everything else. No, <laughs> I could disagree with you about a lot of things. But in the end, right, Jesus wins, we say. And I, that's pretty helpful. I think we could get behind the new creation reality. Regardless of what's going to happen between right now and then, you know what? This is certain. And so we can get along maybe perhaps better if we have this in mind. I think one reason it's agreeable, new creation kind of stuff, is because it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward to figure out what no more death means. It's pretty straightforward to figure out what it means to have no more mourning, right? And have old destroyed and new created. That's pretty straightforward. 
I think perhaps one reason why we're divided as Christians so many times is because we are so insistent on making all of the other things the main things. Might be, can I just say it might be a good idea if we looked at the simple passages like this and tried to maybe keep end times views a little simpler than we do. We might get along better. Now, I'm kind of nervous right now because I'm going to say something about history and uh, I'm saying it in front of historians and I don't even play one on TV. Okay, so I'm not a historian, but I do like history and I like to read books about history and historical theology and I do think it's true, as far as I can tell, that coming up with a detailed view of end times timing specifics is a pretty new thing for the church. Doesn't mean there weren't different views. There have been all kinds of different views, but making them a test for orthodoxy or church membership, that's, that's, that's a newer thing. That's a newer thing, like 19th century with dispensationalism and John Nelson Darby, and now all of a sudden you have to believe this and this and this and this, or you can't be a member of our church. That's how serious it is. How about just consider before that? Apostles' Creed, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Nicene Creed, he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Athanasian Creed, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I lost count of how many Baptist confessions I looked at from 1120 to 1994. No specifics regarding the timing. Belgic Confession affirms Christ's return and judgment, but no, without detail regarding all of the timing issues. And I think the Westminster Confession essentially does the same thing. So bigger picture, historically Christians, from my perspective, have kept it rather lean, affirming things like new creation. And we don't have to divide over the other things. Something to think about. So I'm giving you my plug for... Uh, a return to more historic confessional Christianity, perhaps. Something to think about. It should be unifying. I think it should be, and it can be. Certainly new creation is. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Number five, we're doing seven of these. The seventh uh, feature that encourages, be encouraged by the new creation because it is timely. It is timely, and I don't mean because the world around us appears to be a mess, even though that's true too. I think it's timely because when you read the book of Revelation, it was first written to be applied. If we go back to the first chapter, chapter 1, I'm going to read a couple of sections. You can look if you'd like to from chapter 1. From the very beginning in the first century, it was meant to be a book that encouraged Christians. It was timely from the beginning. So how about this? In Revelation 1-4, John to the seven churches who are in Asia. He's writing to historical churches, real churches, and he's going to write to them to encourage them and comfort them, whether there's hostility from the government, hostility from unbelievers, hostility from wherever it's going to come from. Things don't look like God's on your side, but let me show you there's more to it than meets the eye. But from the beginning, he's writing to churches. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Verse 3 ends with saying, for the time is near. The King James says, for the time is at hand. Apparently the church in the first century needed the message. Apparently ever since there have been churches, we've needed the message. 
Notice it doesn't say, write this down because one day it will help others speculate about the future and make millions of dollars fictionalizing it. Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm, right? It's for the church throughout the ages. How about this? May I suggest if the book of Revelation, if you can't find any practical use for the book today, if we can't find any encouragement and practical um, benefit from it today, we might be reading it wrong. We might be reading it wrong. In some ways, I would like this session that I have with you to be a motivator. To be a motivator to not read and apply the book of Revelation like a weirdo. Where did I get that from? Well, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not a gentleman, and I'm not a southern gentleman, so I shouldn't say things like that. But S. Lewis Johnson was a southern gentleman, and he said this, We have much interest in prophecy in evangelical circles, interest coming from weirdos who sit on their watchtowers feverishly, friend, frenziedly, I can't even say it, fluttering after the future. He goes on to call them future snoopers, fanatics, and cranks. So... It's no wonder my brother Mike likes S. Lewis so much and just published a Colossians commentary. So I would never call anyone a weirdo, but S. Lewis would and maybe my brother would too. I digress. You get the idea, right? Let's try to read the Bible like we're not strange, like somehow we're coming up with something that nobody, no one's ever come up with before. Let's not do that. I think S. Lewis was right when he wrote that in the 60s or whenever he wrote that. Might I suggest some guiding principles? Not an exhaustive list, but might I suggest reading, reading like uh, we're not weirdos includes actually reading it and not fictional books about it. Just read the book. Just read the book. Or how about read it for edification? Lord, encourage me. I'm struggling. I just. The opening verses give it away. The opening statement gives it away. 1-1, one, one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you don't read anything beyond that, just, just think about that. The revelation to, of Jesus Christ, Jesus, right? Name him Jesus, Matthew 1, because he will save his people from their sins. You need deliverance. That's what salvation means, right? Ultimately from sin, guess what? Jesus is the deliverer from sin and all of its effects. The revelation of the deliverer. Oh, Lord, thank you. The revelation of Jesus Christ, Okay, how about that? The, the Messiah, the king, when maybe even the government isn't your best friend, who's the ultimate king? Who's the ultimate Messiah? Who's the ultimate? Kings are meant to provide, uh, provide, to protect, to fight off enemies, to defeat foes. Jesus is the ultimate king like that, ultimate Messiah like that. In one sense, if you do your devotions and that's all you get to before your eyes are closed, may the Lord bless you you could probably get more encouragement than you would if you were just being fancy. Hope you can read more than that, though. Maybe another guiding thing would be, as you read the Revelation, reading it like it's a prophetic vision. Reading it like it's a prophetic vision. When you read, I mean, if you read Daniel, if you read Isaiah, how about Ezekiel? And re the Revelation is drawing upon all of those things. Dare I say, when you read Ezekiel, you think, this is pretty weird. Oh, how, maybe how about this? Maybe one way to not be a weirdo in reading the book of Revelation is just to acknowledge that it's weird, right? The visions are weird. I don't know if I should say that or not. They're strange, right? They're so, some of them are so strange, you say, I don't really understand what that means. 
And maybe you saying, I don't understand what that means, keeps you from being a weirdo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad this isn't a Sunday morning sermon. I might lose my job for saying weirdo so many times. But <laughs> You know, when you have a dream... And sometimes our dreams are totally crazy, but you have a dream when some, quite a bit of it makes sense, but there are parts of it that just don't make sense. I wouldn't be the first Bible teacher to say, these are visions that are not altogether different from dreams. And you say, I understand the gist of it, but there are parts of it that I don't really understand why it was in there. Might be helpful. How about reading it like it's a picture book? That's Sinclair Ferguson's advice, and I like that advice. He takes it from one one to show. It's to show you something. You have these pictures, these images, and you don't understand all the details, but you can understand the big idea. Maybe one more guiding principle and then we'll move to the next, and that is reading it like it's not laid out chronologically. And most scholars, even from different backgrounds, would agree to that, right? Things recycle. Um, They're stated in different ways. And so when you read Revelation 1-1 to all the way to the end and think it's all in a chronology, you're not reading it like most Christians have read it because things cycle. Things come around. Dennis Johnson, in his helpful book uh, on the Revelation, talks about he uses an illustration of different camera angles and how helpful that is. And he talks about uh, football games. Is there a football game anytime soon? I don't want to know the score. We try to plan these around such things, but anyway, I digress. Different camera angles, and, and if, a, if you're watching a game on TV and a touchdown is scored, if you weren't really paying attention because of replays from different angles, you might think that they just scored three touchdowns because it's just from a different angle, but it was actually the same. They didn't just score 21 points, counting extra points. It was only seven. And in the Revelation, you see things shown different ways, and it's not unpacking a strict chronology. It's just giving, giving you a different perspective of what's happening. And it's important to know that things aren't always the way they look before your naked eyes. Revelation is showing you something from a more spiritual angle. Okay, we have two more to do, so let's ramp this up. Number six, be encouraged by the new creation because it is for elect exiles struggling with Babylon. Now, how many of you registered as an elect exile struggling with Babylon and paid your 25 bucks? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully none of you did, but maybe before you leave, I want you to think of yourself as an elect exile struggling with Babylon. And I say that because Babylon is a huge problem in Revelation. Revelation 14.8, Revelation 16, 18.2, 18.10, 18.21. It's all over the place. Babylon is a problem. Well, it's drawing from Old Testament images, right? Babylonian exile. And when you're exiled in Babylon, you long for Jerusalem. You long to go back to the promised land. You long to be redeemed out and set free because you want to go back home. And so when we read the Revelation, if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we'll say, ah, Babylon. Oh, and by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uses it uh, symbolically. He's not really talking about Babylon. He's talking about the opponents of the people of God. So there's a precedent for that. So 1 Peter, then, let's use that to interpret the Revelation, if you will, because up until five minutes ago, Christians used to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's do that like good Christians. Listen to this. 
First Peter chapter one, verse one, elect exiles. He calls Christians elect exiles. First Peter 1.17, the time of your exile. First Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles. If you have an older translation, strangers and aliens. It's the aha moment. It's the light bulb moment if you've never thought about this before. It was for me when I heard, first heard it. When we're struggling because we're not at home, we all know where that is. The new Jerusalem that comes from above, when we're struggling because we're not there, we're exiled in Babylon, we long for the new creation. We long for the ultimate Jerusalem, just like, maybe not just like, but similarly to those in the old covenant that long to go to the old Jerusalem. So there's a reason why we don't feel at home. There's a reason why we are troubled uh, yes, we would like our Babylon to be as good as it could be. Uh, I'm engaged. I, I want it to be nice. Even when the Israelites were exiled, they were to pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Kind of interesting to think about. But they weren't commissioned with trying to make Babylon Jerusalem. And so, how about this? It's no wonder that there's hardship. It's no wonder there's hostility. It's no wonder there's gross idolatry running rampant. It's no wonder you face persecution. It's no wonder that the Babylonians don't share your values and convictions. It's no wonder because Babylon isn't Jerusalem. I need to remember that. No amount of effort by supposed cultural transformation will ever transform Babylon into the new Jerusalem. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 21, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Not Moscow, Idaho. Verse 4, the former things. Come on. Verse 4, the former things have passed away. I didn't realize I was going to get that. Okay, we better be done. I have three minutes. Okay, finally, number seven, be encouraged by the new creation because it's entered by gospel, not law. Be encouraged by the new creation because it's entered by gospel and not law. This couldn't be a pactum conference without talking about law and gospel. Now, I know my brother Mike will talk about such things when he talks about justification tomorrow, but let's end with this. How do we get in? How about if we could just move to the next chapter, if you will. I just couldn't resist. I needed a seventh point. It's a pactum conference. We can't do gospel. It's gospel because when you don't keep them separate, you lose both of them. How about chapter 22, verse 12, if you look there with me? It says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, my payment, my compensation with me to repay each one for what he has done. Is that true? I know that it's true. Is it good? It would be good. Justice is good. Is it good news? Not for Pat Abendroth. If I don't have an advocate and a substitute. Justice. Likewise, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And if I take that out of context, that doesn't make it any better for me. Who, what kind of judge am I dealing with? A perfect judge. 
Then, how about verse 14? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the city gates. The one way to get in is to be pure, okay? At least I know what it takes. I gotta be pure. I have to have white garments. In Revelation 7, 14, we know they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, gospel. How do you get in? Be pure. How am I pure? Only by the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death, though he never sinned, and was raised for our justification, ascended as our perfect high priest. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Father, thank you for this opening session. Thank you for these dear saints who are here tonight. Encourage us with the good news about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we long for his return. We're thankful for the fellowship, the time together, for the opportunities to learn. May Christ be glorified and may your people be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.